Hello, I'm Nigel Hughes, Scientific Director in the Epidemiology Group at Global R&D at Janssen and Project Lead for Eden. So welcome to the Voice of Eden podcast, uh, season three, episode three actually now, and delighted to have a colleague uh, join us for today's episode, uh, Paul Naji, uh, working at Johns Hopkins. And uh, Paul, uh, welcome to the Voice of Eden podcast. And I'd love you to uh, maybe give a little bit of background on your your current role and activities and so forth. And we'll get into a bit more about your background and career a little later. But always great for people to uh, to know uh, a little bit of background of uh, of my uh, of my guests on uh, on the episode. So, Paul, welcome. Gosh, thank you so much. It's really a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today about it. So, I am an associate professor of radiology at uh, Johns Hopkins in the School of Medicine. Uh, I And I'll explain that a little bit. I have joint appointments in the departments of medicine. I have an appointment in health policy management in our School of Public Health. And I have an appointment in biomedical engineering in our School of Engineering. And so having said all that, you must wonder, what in the world do I do? Uh, yeah. I, I am the program director for our biomedical informatics and data science training program here in our graduate school in the School of Medicine. Uh, and I so I, I really spent a lot of time in education around biomedical sciences and informatics. I also serve as an executive within the Johns Hopkins Health System as the deputy director for our Technology Innovation Center, where we actually have a team of over 50 software engineers where we build clinical decision support solutions and mobile applications to help our uh, physicians and clinicians be innovators and to help them deploy technology and create new relationships with our patients. And so I'm involved in a lot of uh, change of using bringing technology in. So I describe my roles. I help empower clinicians. I like to bring in data science and bring in technology to help them uh, re-engineer uh, broken healthcare systems and help them build better relationships with their patients. Uh, now, uh, yeah, so that's kind of what my role is. And so I, I serve in a few different capacities within uh, the university. So I get, and a lot of it is, if you think about information technology and data science, it is a super specialty. And so it's actually really useful to cross these organizational boundaries. There's obviously important statistical methods you want to have. There's obviously a lot of engineering you want to have. And of course, you want to bring those folks into uh, the clinical space to help our clinicians re-engineer their care delivery. Fantastic, Paul. Thank you for that phenomenal summary. I mean, wow, on so many levels. I mean, it's a way of life, those, I think particularly for, for academic colleagues, that you live in a very plural existence. <laughs> and uh, yeah, never one particular role or directorship uh, or appointment, as it were. And also, and you rightfully point that out, I think strong elements obviously of being a multidisciplinarian and collaboration. And these are supposed at the cornerstone alongside obviously a particular focus in educational and development aspects, but th these are kind of cornerstone elements of your role, right? Yeah, I like to think of it as really as vital to team science, uh, yeah, is that yeah. today we have a lot of specialists Time. Yeah, and yeah. we really need to connect them. Uh, to build interdisciplinary uh, connections, to bring data sources together, to bring disciplines together. And I think this is really epitomized really well within our Odyssey community, where we've brought in clinical analytics, informatics, statistical methods, along with a lot of clinical domain expertise. So we really have four communities right within Odyssey, and the strength of us is, is us coming together. 
Yeah, actually, that's because that's the point. You don't just stop there with your role at John Hopkins, roles at John Hopkins, but but also you've been a leading light, I think, which we'll get into in a moment. I think within within Odyssey as well, within observational health data sciences and informatics global collaboration. So um, um, I don't. We may not have time, therefore, to discuss what you do in on 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 your your uh, on your downtime, <laughs> if you ever have any. <laughs> but um, but no, thank you for that background. That's fantastic insight. I think for us all. Um, and based on that, I think people are already getting some insights actually into that. I think our first area, and again, you know, we start with these three prompts that we use to, to support the conversation through our podcast episodes. Now, our first one is, and as probably the audience has picked up, you have a particular visual interest actually in educational aspects, but but from start to finish actually, and importantly, kind of closing the circle, if I can go that way, in terms of educational metrics and evaluation and so forth, but understanding the impact of what we do also educationally, which I think particularly uh, highlights you and your role, actually, in terms of uh, terms of uniqueness. Um, but how did, how did your career kind of evolve leading into that? Because you mentioned, obviously, in terms of, you know, in, in terms of uh, you know, your, your current roles and so forth, whether it's in informatics and imaging and, and you know, radiology and radiography and so forth. But what led to all of this in your in your career? I'm kind of curious. Yeah, so uh, I was trained as a diagnostic medical physicist. Uh, most people don't know what this role is, but what this role is, is this is a physicist who actually works inside a hospital. Uh, mm -hmm. I, uh, I was trained to help radiologists and imaging technologists work with imaging systems such as x-rays and computed tomography, magnetic resonance imaging, positron emission tomography, ultrasound, any time where there's energy that was used to image the body for anatomical mm -hmm. or physiological properties. And so this involved, and so I actually did my doctoral training at a medical school, and I spent my time working closely with clinicians, helping them understand how to use imaging technology. And I think, you know, what I find is like the common denominator in my career has been really about empowering clinicians on how to use technology and data science. Uh, oh, to advance yeah. clinical care and to advance biomedical discovery. And a, a lot of that comes down to educating uh, and uh, in that process. And so one of the things that really led me in this pathway is that the digital revolution in healthcare came early in radiology. It actually uh -huh. came in the early 2000s uh, right. with the, uh, the rise of computed tomography scanners that were now creating hundreds of images per patient of axial slices. And it became much more feasible to work with images stored electronically than to print them out on expensive silver-based cellulose film. And mm -hmm. so, by, so by 2005, the industry had reached a tipping point where the cost of medical-grade monitors, uh, the storage of medical images, imaging standards for storage and, and transmission, and the networking capabilities really made the case for digital management of images. What was holding up the adoption of, of this technology and its use in healthcare was the professionals that were trained because they were all trained in vendor-specific applications. Uh, and the sites that were deploying the technology were getting widely varied results. Some went really well, some went really poorly. And what was needed was generalized training of what the job was and also a certification program to define the roles and skills needed for a successful implementation of a digital management system for imaging. And so, and this role required a hybrid 
IT person and a clinical person that knew technology but could work with clinical teams. And so mm -hmm. in 2006, the American Society of Radiologic Technologists and the Society of Imaging Informatics and Medicine created the American Board of Imaging Informatics with the goal of creating a certification for imaging informatics. And what did this entail? So uh, I was the, uh, the, the chair and I served on the board of, of this uh, organization. We started by doing a job analysis, what tasks needed to be done for successful implementation. We then validated that job task analysis and created a test content outline of things that people needed to know. And then mm -hmm. uh, we built an item bank of questions that could fit the, t the test content outline and look to evaluate each item. And this was really interesting where I learned this idea, this field called psychometric analysis, where every question in a test um, is, you know, when we ran a test, we would introduce a few new questions and we would study them. If folks who do well on the test uh, got this question wrong, that means that there's something might be wrong with the question. And so it, it, it might have a poor stem or a poor distractor. Whereas nice. folks who do poorly on the test overall, but get the question right, maybe this question was not a good discriminator. And so really it helps you, you start studying the questions themselves and you take them apart and you look at them, how they people performed as part of a test. And this process mm -hmm. is called psychometric evaluation. And we ended up publishing all of our work as part of this process for building this new profession and this new career. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm gonna share with you the links for the validation studies that we did, but it's a straightforward right. process, but it's really useful. And to date, we have over 1500 people who have become certified throughout the world in this testing methodology to become an effective PACS administrator, to be able to understand how to work with radiologists and clinicians for deploying technology without, you know, without uh, harming the clinical productivity of our of our radiologists. Fantastic. I mean, wow. Let's unpack a few points there. I think tremendous oversight and, and, and what a uh, what are you really delineated and outlined in terms of your career of fantastically logical progression from your your own roots in terms of your own practice? Everything looks logical in retrospect. If you can, you can, you know. Yes, the true. You're absolutely right. Funny that, isn't it? It kind of history evens out the bumps, doesn't it? But um, but yeah. So so from your own practice and your own background, as it were. But then also following the evolution and as you say, very rapid and early evolution in terms of the whole imaging arena. I mean, I for myself remember, I work clinically, I remember the days of film x-ray and very much like, you know, the whole, all the mythology around digital photography and what happened to Kodak and all that kind of stuff that we're all aware of probably. But certainly in terms of medical imaging, when we eventually started moving to digital imaging, even with x-rays, to the point now that I think certainly when in the National Health Service where I used to work, Years ago, I don't think anyone uses film X-ray anymore. But not only that, it's not just that. Oh, it's it's nice and digital. But of course, to your point, the evaluation, the interpretation of that of an X-ray or indeed any scan now um, can be done well, literally anywhere at any time. Of course, anyone who's got you know a good enough resolution screen, uh, and even with phone screens these days, I mean we've got relatively high resolution of to to look at imagery. Um, but that actually has radically changed so much about everything from working practice, I suppose, to speed and turnaround time through to even the, the nature of the, the clinical decision making, not only the, if effectively the resolution of the imaging, but the resolution of the decision making as well, which you've all captured in, in, in terms of the progression you outlined. 
but but also to your point that particular interest that clearly from a psychometric point of view that that stimulate that you were stimulated by in terms of uh, not evaluate not only evaluating colleagues and participants and their learning but evaluating the learning mechanisms the tools and the methods we use and ensuring that they are crafted and recrafted as well as iterated to, to ensure we give people the best shot i mean I, really it's, it's in no one's interest is it to to see people fail so to speak uh, a test or an exam or some kind of evaluation as it were uh, they're all uh, they're not empty buckets to be filled they're all extremely uh, you know knowledgeable um, clinicians and colleagues and so forth um, but you want to give obviously the best shot that they learn the best, best way but we evaluate them the best way which is again this kind of closing the audit loop right yeah, the purpose of a certification is to ensure that the individual under, is able to do the, the common denominator of tasks around it. In terms oh, of imaging, I think it's a good lesson as we introduce imaging technology into healthcare, it had two major mm -hmm. benefits and one major drawback. Uh, so a, a major benefit, as you mentioned, was a lot of the times uh, in a film-based world, we couldn't find any relevant priors. They were in uh, sometimes stuck in surgeries. And so getting hold of a relevant prior was always very difficult. And so today uh, we can see uh, everyone can access the relevant priors. So that's a major benefit. And now also mm -hmm. today, because it's digital, we can subspecialists can then find the images from around the world or be able to refer images to subspecialists so that we really can get uh, the people who are really focused on that type of imaging modality for that body part to really be able to read that case. Uh, but there's yeah. also been downsides to this technology. When we introduced these PAC systems in the 2000s, what we found was a 95% reduction in the collaboration between physicians and clinicians and the radiologists. And so we saw, we ended up sterilizing a lot of relations with this technology. And so one of the things we wanted to ensure as part of training these uh, IT professionals was that they try hard and they were able to bridge, also enable communication methods uh, so that the radiologists were able to, and that any questions of the referring physician and, and the collaboration was still able to be able to be maintained. And I think that's really a challenge today as we, as we have health record systems and EMRs, uh, it, yep. it, it further exacerbates a lot of the, um, the isolation we have and, and, and it may put barriers around collaboration between all of our different uh, clinical teams. Fascinating. I mean, I think to kind of resummarize the kind of the relative prize and, and ensuring the context of, of that imaging obviously links back to, you know, it's an image of a patient, but their history and, and their background and so forth are uh, extremely important in terms of interpretation. So, so phenomenal point. But, but also that kind of wisdom of the crowd, as you mentioned, in terms of being able to see, you know, more and more people being able to interpret the same images. Actually, to your point, irrespective of geographies and time zones potentially, um, but, but to, to particularly, I suppose, Going away from the maybe more routine to the more complex, uh, you know, the more the more the more eyes, the more vision. Uh, we haven't even got into machine learning and quote AI, AI types of methods where this has been seen a lot, obviously, particularly in imaging. But but th that kind of wisdom of the crowd really important. But but I'm shocked actually by your point about the 95% reduction in collaboration. But, That's remarkable. Yeah. The, the benefit of that, it was able to save the average referring physician an hour a day from having to tromp down to radiology to go look at the images. So it had a significant productivity enhancement on yeah. uh, referring physicians so they could see the images up in the in the ICU and in the, the floors that they were already in. Uh, but uh, we often, uh, and I think in healthcare, one of the next pieces of generation of technology that we need to bring in is is allow, allowing a lot more collaboration between our specialists uh, to be able yeah, to make yeah. sure that they're coordinating care effectively. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, many of the people we see as patients now see you on average now multiple numbers of, of you know multidisciplinary teams, multiple specialists, lots of comorbidities. And of course, you know, many, as we are all aware, unfortunately could be acting in isolation, but still managing the same patient's care, which is obviously uh, dangerous, actually, in some respects, but also very difficult in terms of that that, that joined up uh, care delivery and joined up thinking around the same patient. So I completely applaud your comment on that. Um, so, so this has been a truly remarkable uh, career trajectory. Uh, and then when did you get involved in Odyssey and, and start to get involved more in, I mean, I've been in Odyssey a few years now, but but you've been in, in Odyssey a lot longer. Um, but what I've seen of your input has been very broad in many different areas of Odyssey's activities and work and focus. But also we've now started collaborating, uh, maybe more recently, uh, around the education work group, and the Eden Academy and so forth. And the kind of impact of what you're saying in our talk today around, for instance, psychometrics as an example, is very meaningful, I think, in terms of Odyssey and this kind of global community and upskilling, as well as education and as, as well in, in terms of working with real world data and so forth. Uh, but what's your particular areas in Odyssey and how does that juxtapose, I suppose, in terms of your local attention, uh, your multiple roles, actually, at Johns Hopkins? It's a challenge, right? Well, uh, it's not a challenge at all. Uh, it's something that excites me greatly. I So my goal is to work with physicians at the point of care who are seeing patients in the clinic, seeing patients in the OR, and yeah. to help empower them to make their clinic into a laboratory so they get access to all of that patient data. Uh, and then they can they can they can then look at their patients and they can say they can have a hunch. A lot of physicians will have a hunch, say, you know, this patient's behaving differently. They're not responding yeah. to the same medications. They don't feel like the same diagnosis. Something's different about this patient. And that is what we call a moment of wonder. And I think almost every physician has that moment of wonder. And the question is, is whether we can empower them to be able to take the next step and be able to ask that question about their patients to see if there's if there's a subgroup of their patients. And that is the, the heart of biomedical discovery, is finding a subgroup of other patients that respond differently or may have different uh, manifestations of their disease. And so uh, I think the key for me is empowering the frontline physicians to be able to ask that question easily. And so for what this journey is, is of course, what we know is, and so with Odyssey, it's really important because now we can create it in a language and that we can define that that's reproducible. And so while you can ask that question in a clinic, you may see a few thousand patients a year. You may see there might be 10 patients that behave really differently in your, in, or you have a hunch around. You don't have enough patients to be able to validate that hunch. And so this is where Odyssey comes in. Where I want is I want a clinician who has that curiosity, who has that question, and then be able to say, okay, I want to see, is it something locally? And they, so they can ask it locally, but then they, it helps them formulate it where they look at each of the cases and they see if it's a false positive or false negative, whether it fits what their mental image was for their hunch, but then be able to formulate that in Odyssey and be able to ask that via a network study. And I think that is, if we can do that cycle and lower that barrier to be able to help them to access millions of patients' records, then we can find uh, the subsets of those patients. You need about a lot of rare diseases only have about 10,000 patients around the world. You need to get to find the uh, a subset of 1,000 of those patients. You need to get access to large data sets. This is at the heart of machine learning. But I want it. It's really it comes down to I want it to be driven by clinician intuition. Uh, and so my job is to empower them. 
And part of that is really about Odyssey. So I want them to be able to, they can have access to their data about their patients in their clinic and they can ask that question if there's something there. But then I want them using the same language to readily be able to ask that of a much larger network. And so for me, Odyssey is that incredible bridge where it helps them formulate their questions and, and help them understand their inclusion criteria with, with complex phenotyping and the concept sets that they use. And then be able to scale to see does do do they have a characterization uh, similar to other institutions? Is something in the demographics of the patients being seen here? Uh, but allow empowers them to be that investigator that we all need them to be uh, to empower biomedical discovery. So for me, this is part and parcel to changing clinical care and enabling biomedical discovery as part of that process. So this is you know what we call a learning health system. Uh, but uh, I feel like Odyssey plays a critical part of that. And that, you know, the key is you can't, we need, uh, for a lot of these hunches though, we can't just ask that question locally within the patient population of that one health system. We need to be able to scale that across mobile systems. And if you can answer that question quickly and at lower cost, that is how we accelerate discovery and evidence generation. Absolutely, yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, it's fascinating what you're saying about, you know, the kind of physician researcher as well, the physician investigator and so forth as well, and combining clinical practice alongside research methodologies and so forth as well. Um, the kind of learning over time, but, but also stimulation of, of research as well. But also quite importantly that, it, it, I mean, it is lifelong learning, I suppose, but particularly that there are learning elements that will happen even after you are license to practice of course and it actually maybe the game really starts there actually in terms of yeah in I, terms would, of I would challenge you that almost every physician has lots of uh pet theories that they would love right. to investigate but they uh know it's too painful and too costly for them to ask those questions and they don't know who right. to go to and they don't know how to start and so uh, i want to drive odyssey into the EMR, into the clinical process where as people are rounding, and we've already seen this at, you know, they've begun doing this at Stanford and at Columbia, is how do we start helping, you know, the clinical investigation process get access to, uh, be able to ask, get, ask larger patient populations to be able to ask and answer questions. No, absolutely. And you, you, you clearly have, uh, well, a global opportunity to do this within Odyssey and obviously you know I suppose juxtaposed again with with your own practice at Johns Hopkins and locally and within your 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 kind of more local network shall we say but then elevating that up to a kind of global network as well in terms of that advancement of practice that advancements of, of skills and behavior and so forth as well but I really also enamored with your point about that kind of moment of discovery as it were you know that that clinical moment the eureka moment almost in terms of in terms of whether it's in diagnosis, you know, clinical decision around the treatment and management of a condition and so forth and, and the outcomes and that reactivity, of course, to changes in conditions and so on. I think it was, I'm trying to remember now, but I think it was said that um, one of the stimulant uh, personalities for, for Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a, was a chap called Dr. Joseph Bell, you're probably aware, uh, who was uh, an Edinburgh-based in Scotland, a, a physician. Um, who was a remarkable diagnostician, I think, but, you know, just by looking at someone, but I think it was him, I may be wrong, there may have been others who said basically in the same ways that if you listen, if you, if you watch, and if you observe, you know, a patient will provide you many of the clues you need to make the diagnosis. Um, and that's irrespective of, kind of funny, isn't it? Because it's irrespective of 
in, in you know this is in the 19th century you know to, to kind of advancements of science that we've had today and in some respects i suppose it, it kind of balances this whole debate about discussion around the science of medicine but also the art of medicine of course as well and the combination of the two um so this is absolutely fascinating in terms of um in terms of your own philosophical almost perspective and your educational perspective as well and in odyssey more recently you've been working on introducing some of these evaluations certainly these psychometric aspects and so forth developing dashboards and so forth for some of the odyssey activities to provide us insights and feedback do you want to explore maybe those aspects as well i think they'll be very interesting for the audience um, so sure. So one of the projects we're working on is called the Community Dashboard, and uh, I can provide the link. And what we're trying to do is look at the look at us as a large ecosystem of open science individuals who are trying to create a new field of computational epidemiology. And so what we are doing is we're looking at it from three perspectives. One is looking at it from the educational perspective of how we're training people in learning these new methods. Uh, and then looking at how we engage people in actually trying to deploy these methods. And then lastly, we look at something called impact for how we create artifacts around knowledge. And so one of the fun things about this is that we're an open, inclusive uh, community. And so a lot of the things that we create are on YouTube and are published in PubMed. And so mm -hmm. the community dashboard is basically it harvests uh, our videos from YouTube and it tracks how people are watching them and using them. Uh, we actually mine PubMed and Google Scholar to track how, how, how our articles are being cited and used okay. in literature. And we're also tracking uh, our EDNet courses to see who's taking our course or how many people are taking our courses and how they're completing them. And the goal is think, thinking of this like an engine where you create education and then we engage people once they get past a certain activation energy of education and actually trying to use Eden tool, uh, Odyssey tools in their work. And then lastly, as they create outputs, whether it's a network study, whether it's a publication, as we create new evidence, how do we see this as a system of that we promote? And how do we accelerate this pr process? And so mm -hmm. I think for me, I like studying systems. And so this is a fantastic system to study. Uh, I, I think this is certainly incredibly important and uh, it's really exciting to see what uh, learning, what should be our next course that we create, what training would have the most impact on getting people engaged and getting people to develop network studies or how, to, how do we onboard different people into our community uh, to make sure that they're involved in this process. So I do see this as an engine and what's fun is we're also pulling data from Microsoft Teams, which is where our free tenant where people engage in working groups and then have our meet weekly or bi-weekly meetings where we're actually creating mm -hmm. work products. And then we're also mining our GitHub uh, page for all of the repos that we create. We have actually over 200 repositories of software that we've created with over 13 million lines of code. Uh, and so there's a lot of activity going on on GitHub and software development mm -hmm. side. And then, uh, and then the network studies themselves, uh, as we start publishing papers, as we start publishing our protocols on GitHub, tracking our network studies for uh, their impact and the amount of data they involved and the results they created. And so I see what I was really, the goal of the community dashboard is to bring that all together and to show it to people and to let oh, people yeah. look at it like an experiment and as a system that, that has feedback. Yeah, um, so a few things there. So, so first and foremost, we can link to some of those uh, dashboards that are available publicly already from the from the write up in the in the in the podcast episode. So it'd be good for people to be able to see the ones that are available already, like for instance YouTube and so on. Um, secondly, I mean you mentioned systems so forth, but it's really within a more macro 
aspect, I suppose, the kind of learning healthcare system and, you know, many of the elements you're talking about are integral to, to, to the success of a, a learning healthcare system, of course, but particularly that bi-directional flow. Um, and also, I mean, I certainly am not aware at this kind of scale, a, you know, the evaluation, shall we say, of a community's activity. Right. Um, I mean, this in itself is a subject area, isn't it? I mean, there will be no doubt a number of publications that will follow, I'm absolutely sure, from this this kind of work too. What, what's what's um, kind of funny is, is part of it's coming out of my personal frustration. And okay. so I don't know if you've ever downloaded an observational research study from PubMed and try to replicate the results. But it really is next to impossible to do. I've spent hours and days trying to understand their inclusion criteria, their methods for analysis. And I know they can't share the data, but I have the data uh, within Hopkins and I'd like to see if I can replicate their results. And I find it very time consuming and very difficult. And I think this is the major barrier for creating mm -hmm. reproducible evidence. And so I just think this is something that is really powerful in Odyssey and I don't, and whenever I see a paper come out on PubMed, I literally want to drag it into my EHR and see if it's <laughs> if it's similar for my patients. And that's yeah. where we can get to with our yeah. with, with Odyssey and our cohort definitions and our JSON specifications. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, it's something Odyssey does pride itself is on, on the concept almost of the dynamic publication, isn't it? That that it's not static, it's not in any journal, it's maybe in a journal, but actually there'll be an ability for other uh, data partners, uh, other researchers and so forth to replicate the study uh, or add to the evidence base in terms of just, you know, much larger cohorts and populations and so forth running that same or rerunning that same study. And it's something we've seen quite traditionally now, I suppose, almost as, as part of, of Odyssey. We are doing that a lot within Eden as well. It's a great way also to train data partners who've newly mapped to the OMOC common data model, their, their, their original data source, but then to kind of rerun studies to evaluate the veracity of doing that, but also learn by doing actually in terms of the tools, skills and methods of conducting that. But again, also then adding to the science. So you win on so many levels. Um, and it's something that I, I think all of us broadly clearly want to see actually become more the routine than the rare, right? To your point. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it is um, truly frustrating. I mean, I think we've seen a lot of the literature on this subject about the lack of reproducibility globally, internationally in science, let alone just in the health discipline. And it's a worry, actually, of course, as well, I think, in, in terms of in terms of scientific discipline and endeavours here and, and actually in, in being able to believe whether it's as scientists and researchers or broadly, you know, our general populations, public and so forth, you know, believing in the scientific output is important that we can show very robust validation of that, of that, of, of that evidence. Um, so again, concur with your points, but it's, I think, philosophically, if nothing else, it's a deeply rooted aspect of, of, of how Odyssey runs and, and what it's about and so forth as well and again mirrored to your points about um about understanding you know the educational aspects of this as well but building this in i suppose into the discipline i mean we will build in that it should be routine actually that you publish your your studies in a form that people can just pick up and as you say practically run through the rehr and then evaluate the results whether consistent or otherwise um and actually that enters then into the overall discourse, doesn't it? The, the scientific debate in terms of those findings, uh, which which are often stilted because we can't replicate studies. So very good point. Um, so inevitably, as always, time is always short with these episodes, and it's, it's really unfortunate. But but also, I suspect some of this you've covered maybe already in some of the points you've made. But 
this is opportunity, I suppose, in this third part of the of the talk, maybe to look more forward thinking, you know, over time. I'm not going to give you a time limit or anything like that because it's always hard. Certainly, uh, you know, immediate, me interim or longer term, whichever. But I mean, I, I suspect from what you've said and what I've known of you, Paul, since we've got to collaborate deeper, uh, which has been phenomenal, um, that you you have a, a vision, I think, of how you would like to to see the you know, the education and training around real world research, uh, but but generally, particularly in terms of clinical decision making, of course, uh, and, and biomedical sciences and so forth. How you'd see that to kind of pan out? What would be your what would be your utopia, your nirvana, your, your ideal vision in the future? I mean, you know, obviously, given the constraints, the resources, funding and all sorts of things that we're all challenged with in healthcare day in, day out. But curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. So I am an experimental scientist, so I learn by doing. And so yeah. I am a big fan of Atlas, which is really an incredible mm -hmm. analytics tool. It's a, it's a user interface. It's a web-based tool that really helps us define cohorts and do data characterization and patient-level prediction and population-level estimation. And I would yeah. say we need to bring education into the when, into the tools that we're using. And so while I'm using the tools, when I'm interested in learning about how to use the tool. And so I would like to see either courses or what we call micro CME components mm -hmm. tied to the actual applications that we use. So as I'm going in and I'm looking for a concept set you know, or as I'm going, I can learn more about the vocabularies or understand uh, some tricks around how to, to broaden my search. Uh, or as I'm going into cohort definitions, I can I can learn uh, more about you know the, the the vocabularies and how to you know how to define a definition. So I think I would say that I would like to see training based upon uh, the applications that we're using. Uh, I know we have an Atlas course, but it, it really yeah. is still a separate thing off to the side. And I'd like to see it where it's almost like linked into the features themselves within the Atlas application, where as you move down from characterization uh, to estimation and, and prediction, you can actually see that, you know, by the way, you haven't taken this course, or here's a course that you can learn on it. Uh, and here's ways to make sure that uh, you know how to use these pieces of the tool. So one is I think we need to bring education to the point uh, where we're actually using the application. And the other one is I think we need to develop our education around our communities for the types of people that are working with it, whether you're a clinician, uh, whether you're a software developer and an informaticist, whether you're mm -hmm. an analyst. And so I think we should have tracks or if you're a statistical methods person, I think we should have learning pathways for helping them advance their careers around around their around their specialization piece of our of our community. No, absolutely. I think I mean, these are many elements that we have discussed as well within Princeton's Odyssey Education Workgroup. And and the fact that you're right, the learning, learning pathways that people come in maybe as knowledgeable uh, novitiates, i.e., you know, maybe new to Odyssey, maybe new to observational research conducted in this way, but they're not new in terms of, you know, not an empty bucket to be filled again. They come with, you know, lots of rich experience, knowledge and skills from their own disciplines. Um, but then moving through that continuum, I suppose, from uh, novitiate through to kind of intermediate, maybe uh becoming more expert maybe becoming mentors and so on not everyone wants to go th through all of those levels depends on your requirements and your context and your yeah well what, what what we cherish in odyssey is the journey 
And part of that journey is education. We're learning and you should be you should be we're going to hopefully helping you do things and learning as you go. There's it's really there's a vast amount to learn in Odyssey. And so uh, I think the most important ways of doing this is trying to actually take off a small piece at a time and and actually try to use it as part of what you're doing in your career and then be uh-huh. able to learn as you go and and part of that learning is actually just interacting and networking with others and learning from them and having them mentor you which is really just as equally important as having an online self-paced course is interacting with folks who do this as a career so they can be your professional mentors and I, that's another part that i really love about odyssey is how open it is for new people to join these working groups that are led by such international uh, superstar, you know, researchers. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, complete experts in, in their field, agreed. But also that very important point made, which is the, the kind of parallel aspects of, yes, there's a lot of theoretical learning, but actually it's the speed of taking that theoretical learning to hands-on real world, uh, you know, applied learning as it were, and stuff that we're, I think, we're focusing on improving also within, within Odyssey that people can, uh, can apply, their their educational input very quickly to a point whether it's collaborating working with their own or, or others others in collaboration data um but this is really critically important because it's also a very fast moving field isn't it and odyssey itself doesn't stand still it's constantly moving forward and evolving in its journey uh whether it's on the tool skills and methods development so forth or on, on the educational aspects um also i suppose bound to say a quick plug uh, you and I will be involved in the education work group session of the Odyssey Symposium. The symposium is running 14th to 16th of, of October in Bethesda, uh, but uh, but on the Sunday, I think between one and three local time, uh, we'll be running the education work group session. So this episode is is, is, is scheduled to go out before then. So uh, so hopefully we'll see a number of uh, participants we know, some new ones, but also maybe some who have listened to your episode by the time they travelled over. To, uh, to the meeting, which will be fantastic uh, in terms of setting up for that work group meeting, uh, which is great. Um, Paul, I mean, a real tour de force. I was very much looking forward to this episode and I don't think I, and I don't think the audience will be disappointed. A real tour de force, a whirlwind through a fascinating area uh, of, of from practice to education, from learning healthcare systems through to the enormous benefits, obviously working within a community like Odyssey, um, the particular focus on evaluation, iteration, but but also you know things like psychometric evaluation, and so forth, but also fine tuning of the, the educational tools that we we have developed. But to your point, ultimately, all of this re- ought to and will result in improved outcomes ultimately for patients, because we'll enhance the, the efficiencies, the accuracies, the confidence around clinical decision making by making uh, and supporting our colleagues who are, are doing this day in, day out, even more rounded in their abilities and their, and their scope. So I do want to thank you uh, for your time today. A wonderful conversation, thoroughly enjoyed it. I certainly look forward to future ones. Uh, well, certainly within the podcast at some point again, but certainly in our ongoing engagement. But Paul, thank you for the time. Yeah, it was really my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Pleasure, thanks a lot. Well, after that fascinating discussion with Paul Naji. We look forward to our next episode, episode four, with Magda Klebus, who's Executive Director for Science, Policy and Regulatory Affairs at the European Federation Pharmaceutical Industries and Associations, or FBIA, representing the RMD-based pharmaceutical industry in Europe. And Magda has had a long and uh, very involved association in supporting and developing 
health data related projects in Europe uh, across uh, IMI, the Innovative Medicines Initiative, and now IHI, Innovative Health Initiative. And I'm sure we can look forward to a very interesting insight from Magda into uh, well her background and, and coming to this point, but also where we are and where we're likely going with very large scale programs uh, in relation to, uh, to health data and the industry. Yeah.